You know, yesterday I was meeting with a, a, a couple just to do some premarital counseling and I'd given them some tapes to listen to and uh, asked them, well, what did you learn? <laughs> it was interesting. The first thing one of them said was, well, before, you even, before I even listened to that tape, you prayed a prayer at the beginning. And this is what God taught me. You know, and I was just so amazed. The first time I ever heard anybody say that. And it suddenly occurred to me that, God, you know, how important that time is. What if I hadn't prayed that morning before the service? You just realize that it's all what God does. We, we are in a very real sense, just incidental instruments. And so, stop with me as we pray, okay? Again. Heavenly Father, we are just so glad that you continue to humble us like this, Father, and show us that a few words directed to you can have more power than all the clever speeches that we can make to people. And so, we acknowledge your greatness, we acknowledge your majesty, we pray for your power to sweep over us now, take every thought captive, make it obedient to Jesus, drive away every demonic influence, every distraction, every evil thought, every disturbing thought, the agendas that are before us, that have what, what happened last night, and all that gnat-like cloud of little things that have to get done. We pray that you will just keep them all at bay for the next little while, that your voice might be the one dominating feature in this place, in Jesus' name. Amen. This past August, was Sunday, Saturday, August the 15th, I had driven up to Bend from Southern California to do my nephew's wedding. It was a beautiful, beautiful morning in Bend, and Bend, Oregon is a wonderfully um, landscape-oriented place. So I got up in the car, and there was lots of time before the wedding to do some photography. You know. So I, I got out and driving towards the mountains, and I kind of noticed my gas tank was a little bit low. Um, so I just had to keep tabs on how far I was driving because there wasn't any gas tank, any gas station around in the route that I had taken. Now, fortunately, in my car, you can just also get an estimate of how much, uh, how many kilometers are still left. So I guess all I had to do was to keep tabs of how far I had come and compare it with how much I've left. It's going to be okay, you know. But then, all of a sudden, I discovered something else, that that thing wasn't very accurate. <laughs> that after I had gone 10 kilometers, I should have had 10 kilometers less to get back, and now it says I only, I've dropped 20 kilometers in that estimate. And so now I had to continue to monitor also how much error the machine was showing because I couldn't afford to cross the point of no return. I had to continuously be careful and calculating and watching that the true reflection of how much I had to get back to was always more than how far I was coming. Do you know that there are spiritual equivalents of that? Points of no return that individuals and nations can sometimes cross. And as we pick up our study of Isaiah once again, that is exactly where we have come to. It's been six weeks now, seven weeks almost, so let me just kind of give you a recap of what we have already learned from Isaiah. We learned, first of all, that the book as a whole is a book of poetry, not of prose. It's not really a linear development from chapter 1 to chapter 66 of an unfolding theme, but the same themes keep meeting us over and over again in different ways and in different settings. And, and the primary purpose is not even one of knowledge and information, although we will be picking up knowledge and information along the way. But it's primarily one of immersion and experience. So that something that you heard last week and didn't touch you at all might suddenly touch you this week. And so the, I, I suggested to you that you be alert and involved throughout a study of Isaiah. The first five chapters of Isaiah basically set are a description of Judah at the time of Isaiah's ministry. Their characteristic or their fundamental sin we learned was the sin of discounting the Holy One of Israel. This awesome God was counted as nothing. Their worship was superficial. 
unimpressive to God because social justice was being violated on a massive scale. All of this was backed up by a leadership that was characterized by arrogant self-confidence. High in self-esteem and low in self-awareness. And throughout these chapters we kept encountering Isaiah portray this in powerful images. So that one or the other of them would get through. A, a wound that wasn't softened and pressed out and bound up. Oak trees with fading leaves. Gardens with no water. Dry tinder with a spark ready to set it on flame. And then an image of a vineyard from which God expected sweet fruit. And instead he got the stink fruit of uh, self-indulgence, unbridled expansion, cynicism, instant gratification. Mixed in with all of this we saw pictures of hope when we would least expect them. And in chapter 2, the picture of the nations streaming to Jerusalem, drawn by the magnetic uh, quality of a people of God that were obeying the law of the Lord and walking in the light of the law. And then in chapter 4, the picture of the glory of God like a canopy over Jerusalem. The, the, the marriage canopy devoting, denoting the fact that God was still in a covenant relationship with his bride Israel. But we also saw that at the end of chapter 5, when he saw stink fruit expecting sweet fruit, there was no picture of hope, but just judgment of exile coming at them. Throughout these first five chapters, there was no references to geographical places, times or names of people, other than Isaiah. Those first five chapters were basically a setup for the sixth chapter, which was a call, the call that Isaiah himself had. And that we learned can be summed up in five basic words. First of all, a confrontation with the Holy One of Israel. A deep conviction of his own sin. A confession of that sin. Cleansing from that sin. And then a commission to preach. And then we saw that the preaching was not something that was going to soften the hearts of the people. But to actually harden them. They had already crossed the point of no return. So much so that the picture now was not of an oak with fading leaves. It was not even of an oak tree with all the leaves gone. <coughs> it was a stump of a tree, a burnt out stump. But even in there, the very last verse of chapter 6, we find hope again. <laughs> that God says, the holy seed is its stump. There is a holy seed in the stump. So the nation had crossed the point of no return. But individuals could respond to Isaiah, like Isaiah did. And those individuals would remain faithful, even as the nation was headed into exile, and they themselves would not be spared it. That group of faithful people will continue in the exile, studying and reading and taking encouragement from Isaiah's prophecies, all of which he preached before they got into exile. And a faithful remnant would come back. Now in chapter 7, the video is kind of wound back to the historical details of how and when they crossed the point of no return that brought Judah into this condition. Uh, and, and because some of the names and the places may not be familiar, uh, let me give you a little bit of background. After King Solomon's death, the country had split into two. The ten northern tribes of Israel became the northern kingdom of Israel and Samaria was their capital. The two 
tribes of David and Benjamin formed the southern kingdom of Judah and their capital was Jerusalem. Uh, Syria, the country north to them, was also known as Aram and, their cap- and its capital was Damascus. Around about this particular time, the dominant world power was Assyria. Starting from that little section in yellow, by the time of this story in, sec- in uh, Isaiah chapter 7, that red boundary describes the expansion of the Assyrian Empire. Their ultimate target was Israel, down south in this area. And of course, this tiny little place called Israel stood in the way. And so they were just going to sweep them off. And these two northern kings, the king of Samaria and the king of Syria, decided, we better form a little coalition. Maybe we can together somehow protect ourselves from this massive invasion of the Assyrian king. And they said to make ourselves stronger, let's go to Judah and get Judah to form part of our coalition as well. And when King Ahaz initially refused, they mounted a military attack to conquer Judah and to replace Ahaz with one of their puppet kings and hopefully these three people would form the coalition. That's the backdrop and this is what we read. In the days of Ahaz, son of Jotham, son of Uzziah, king of Judah, Rezin, the king of Syria, and Pekah, the son of Remaliah, the king of Israel, came up to Jerusalem to wage war against it, but could not yet mount an attack against it. When the house of David was told, Syria is in league with Ephraim, the heart of Ahaz and the heart of his people shook as the trees of the forest shake before the wind. There's another powerful image for us. When Ahaz was told that these two kings are now going to come and attack you because you didn't sign up on a coalition, they're going to force you to become part of the coalition. Both him and the people's hearts were shaking like trees before the wind. You and I do not live in a time and a situation where military attacks are threatening us right now. But there are all kinds of things, great and small, that can set our hearts shaking. The economic ones are the most common ones these days. After a really, really shaky 2008, people were kind of getting happy that from March till December of 2009, the, the stock markets were recovering and things were getting a lot better. When all of a sudden, the, all of the shenanigans south of the border, and you know what's going on there, uh, somebody announced 10 days ago that Ben Bernanke may not be reappointed as chairman of the Federal Reserve. <laughs> Guess what's happened to the stock market in the last 9, 10 days? And then they're telling us that if he doesn't get reappointed, the stock market might die by another thousand points. Well, this kind of stuff shakes people's hearts, or some people's hearts anyway. On a totally different scale, apart from money issues, recently becoming aware of two conversations where parents have suddenly been confronted by the massiveness of the evil that goes on in the school system, and their hearts begin to shake at the prospects that are ahead for their children. I thought of September 15th, 2004, My brother and sister-in-law were visiting us from Singapore. I was on holidays for that week and we spent a wonderful fall day in Niagara on the lake. I came back around 9.15 at night. My mother said, there's a message for you from Jean. Jean Friesen was the office manager. I went over to the office and Jean gave me an 80-page lawsuit in which I was named along with a whole lot of other things, a multi-million dollar lawsuit. And my heart began to shake. And in very recent times, and the sudden death of Pastor Nancy has reminded us of our mortality. And, some, and our hearts begin to shake at the next little thing that might go wrong with us physically. December 3rd, 2008, three months before I was scheduled to leave on my sabbatical, I was actually on, just on my way out to speak at the Muskoka Wood Staff Conference 
when I got a call from a specialist office saying, hey, we need to probably do a biopsy on your prostate just to make sure you don't have cancer. I didn't, and that was fine. But again, my heart was shaking. You know, all kinds of things happened, great and small, to set our heart shaking. And our brother, uh, Prem, uh, John Palagoda, leading us today. A simple request to lead a worship service can set your heart shaking. What do we do then? Listen, listen to what happened. And the Lord said to Isaiah, Go out to meet Ahaz, you and Shear, your shub, your son, at the end of the conduit of the upper pool on the highway to the washer's field. What was the king doing on the uh, uh, water conduit? Jerusalem was physically impregnable where it was located, but it had one vulnerability, water supply. It had to get the water supply from outside. And there was this aqueduct that supplied water to them. It was vulnerable. So the king was probably out there saying, Hey, these people are attacking. Guess what they're going to attack? And so, how are we going to secure our water supply for the inevitable siege that's coming? And at that place, God says to Isaiah, you go tell him, be careful. And the word doesn't mean be careful about what's going on outside. It primarily means watch. Watch yourself. Be careful. Be quiet. Carrying with it the idea of inaction for the purpose of listening. And do not fear. And do not let your heart be faint. Because of these two smoldering stumps of firebrands. That the fierce anger of Rezin and Syria and the son of Remaliah. Because Syria with Ephraim and the son of Remaliah has devised evil against you, saying, Let us go up against Judah and terrify it. Let us conquer it for ourselves and set up the son of Tabil as king in the midst of it. Thus says the Lord God, it shall not stand, it shall not come to pass. Hmm. On the one hand, you had the word of man. And immediately after that, there was the word of God. (laughs) The word of man set Ahaz's heart trembling. (laughs) The word of God comes into that situation and says, Be careful. Watch yourself. Don't do anything. Be quiet and listen. Because that's the way you're going to deal with the problem of your shaking hearts. Why? Because he says, These are just two smoldering stumps of firebrand. Two pieces of wood that have been burnt down. All they have is a little glowing tip at the end. They can no longer supply heat. They can no longer supply light. In other words, they are spent forces. It is a powerful image of how God sees these two kings. The king of Syria and the king of Israel. That was threatening to attack Ahaz. And he says, because because they are spent forces. All these impressive plans that they have to tear you apart and substitute your king, kingship with one of their puppet kings, it's not going to happen. Why? Because they're only humans and I am the sovereign Lord. You see, this whole matter of being calm, careful, and courageous is not something that bring, happens in our lives by the power of positive thinking, you know? Day by day, in every way, I'm getting better and better. I'm going to be calm, cool, and courageous. No, it doesn't work that way. No, instead God says, you need to focus on what I am saying about this situation. Visible reality is these two kings that are coming at me. And they have formed a coalition now. Earlier on in their history, he had beaten back individual attacks from them. But now they are coming together. But invisible reality is how God sees these two powerful kings. 
as smoldering firebrands. Therefore, he says, what they are planning to do will not happen. You don't need to do anything. Watch yourself instead. Forget them, watch yourself. Don't act, be quiet, listen to me. And then come the words that we've been focusing on from the very beginning of Isaiah. If you're not firm in your faith, you will not be firm at all. And because this is the heart of the whole book, and here we are in the chapter that gives us that rights, I, I give, I'm going to give it to you in three or four different translations. So you just get the flavor of the original words. The message says this, so if you don't take your stand in faith, you won't have a leg to stand on. NASB, if you will not believe, you shall surely not last. And then the NIV version, if you do not stand firm in your faith, you will not stand at all. In times of crisis, whether big or small, faith in God is the central unavoidable issue of our lives. So let me just remind you again what faith really is. A couple of years ago when we were going through Hebrews chapter 11 while we were studying believing God at night, you remember this definition from faith. That faith is the absolute conviction that behind invisible reality there lies an invisible reality whose nature is revealed in the word of God and which holds the clue to understanding visible reality. So strong is this conviction that it determines our responses to and actions in visible reality. Faith is the absolute conviction that behind visible reality there lies an invisible reality whose nature is revealed in the word of God and which holds the clue to understanding visible reality. So strong is this conviction that it determines our responses to and actions in visible reality. This is something that will have to be revisited regularly in my life and in yours. Because it takes time, it takes a lifetime to learn to live by faith. So we can expect God to regularly inject situations into our life where we will find our hearts fluttering like trees in the wind. And so all over again we will need to learn to be careful, calm and courageous. And will happen in exactly the same way, not by the power of positive thinking or by learning little formulas. It will happen again by shifting our focus Upon who God is and what he has said about the situation. In this, in King Ahaz's particular case, who God is, is the sovereign Lord, the sovereign Lord of history. What he has said is that these two kings are smoldering stubs of firewood, so don't worry about them. It is by refocusing our attention in each of these crisis situations, big or small, on who God is and what he has said, that we will learn to be calm and courageous. Let me give you a couple of illustrations. I've given you more details in the study guide for you to think, think about this week. Some of you have gone to the website and have already heard the message that I preached at Urbana. For those of you who haven't, and just by way of reminder for those who have, it's, it's a perfect illustration of, of, uh, in the New Testament of how they did, lived out this. Because it could have been a point of no return. Peter and John had been called by the Sanhedrin, the powerful ruling body in Israel, and told not to preach anymore in Jesus' name under threat of physical punishment, under threat of that agony. So they go to the church, and the parallel is perfect. (laughs) Instead of the the king of Syria and the king of Israel, we now have the Sanhedrin. 
Instead of King Ahaz, we have Peter and John, the leadership of the church. Instead of Judah, we have the church. Now what did they do? In the face of this threat. It was a point of no return. They're going to stop preaching out of fear. We wouldn't be here today. But they do exactly what needed to be done. When they started out, their radar screen was full of the Sanhedrin. That's always on their radar screen. And you read their prayer in Acts chapter 4, you find that they bring God into the picture from four different dimensions. First of all, the sovereign Lord. Then the God who creates. The creator God. Then the God who reveals. And they specifically focus on Psalm 2, which is a pertinent word of God, directly pertinent to the situation they are in. And then the God who has acted recently in the history of Jesus. And it is as it were that the Sanhedrin was just swamped by this growing picture of God. Sovereign God, creator God, revealer God, act, God active in history. The problem was shrunk to its proper dimensions as God grew large. And then they responded with courage. And they waited, the place was filled with the Holy Spirit, and they preached the word of God boldly. There's a second story, this one in the Old Testament. Again, I mentioned that in the study guide, you can take a look at it. This was more like the situation of Ahaz. It was Jehoshaphat, another king of Judah. Two armies from the Ammonites and the Moabites were coming at him. And, and, and he basically, literally, he talks about standing in faith. He, he stands still. He said, Lord, we are standing here. We don't know what to do. Just like Catherine said to the people, I don't know what to do. I don't know how to throw a party. We don't know what to do, but our eyes are upon you. And the prayer is a magnificent prayer. Read it. Are you not the God who did this? Will you not do this? Did you not do this? The whole prayer is focused on God, are you not this kind of a person? God, did you not do this in the past? God, will you not do this in the future? And God took care of the armies. They didn't have to do anything. Now some of you are saying, this sounds very much like what you preached two weeks ago from Psalm 11. You're right. There's just the same message in disguise. Because it's all about immersion. You see, it's not about knowledge. Psalm 11 and the principles of finding out what righteous people can do when the foundations are crumbling isn't a nice little sermon to get us over the initial shock of Pastor Nancy's passing and of Haiti's chaos. It is the way we have to live every day of our lives. And in recent times I've had to do that as, an in, as one dimension of my personal life has once again set my heart shaking a bit and it's been my joy to rediscover every day. <laughs> God speaking through his word to just bring back calmness. I have to pay attention to myself, not the situation outside of me. That's how I get calm again. And, and for some of you who may not be facing any kind of uh, uh, crisis at all, even when nothing, I don't know about you, but even when nothing big is happening outside of me, every Tuesday morning I face a crisis. You know why? Because the week is before me and I have more things to do than I can possibly do. And then something unexpected will happen like in the last couple of weeks and then that just increases. And my heart can shake, sometimes quietly, sometimes violently. And there's a tremendous temptation at that point to calm yourself by focusing on how you're going to handle this whole thing and getting down to the work that has to be done. And yes, the work does have to be done. Sermons have to be prepared and preached. But the first thing that God says to us in every one of those situations is watch yourself first. Quiet down. Do nothing. Listen to me. And so each day, it is a deliberate step of faith to say, if I will not stand in faith, I will not be firm at all. 
Even in the face of just the work that has to be done this week. And so I'm going to down tools before I do anything. I'm going to watch, pay attention to my heart for the person doing the work is more important than the work that has to be done. You have to change on the inside first. And that's a daily exercise in faith. And by the way, the more we learn to do this in the daily exercises of faith, the more likely we are to respond when there are massive crises coming at us. And we don't know when and if they will come. And so the word to all of us in all those situations is be calm, be careful, be courageous. Bring God into the picture. Refocus your attention in the situations where your hearts are shaking like the wind. You say, who is God and what has he said that is pertinent to this situation? Let me pay attention to that first. Well, what did Ahaz do? Again, the Lord spoke to Ahaz and asked a sign of the Lord your God. Let it be as deep as Sheol or as high as the heavens. Now, it's unbelievably gracious of God. You see, because this was, this Ahaz was at the climb that crossing it meant the point of, it was like me taking that one extra kilometer in my car that would strand me. And so God was gracious. He said, Ahaz, you can ask me for a sign. Highest heaven, deepest heaven, meaning what? Any, whatever your mind can conceive. And this man, he knew that one of his ancestors, Joshua, had even asked the sun to stand still. That's the sign of the highest heavens. I was so gracious of God. Wouldn't we like an offer like that when we are facing massive challenges? Ask me for any sign you want. What does he do? I won't ask and I will not put the Lord to the test. He's very pious. He covers this in religious language. Because in Deuteronomy chapter 6, God specifically told Israel, do not put the Lord to the test by asking for signs. So he sounds like he's on good ground. Oh, I'm not going to do that. You know, I'm too good for that. Oh, this wasn't humility at all. This was a cover-up for disobedience. You know why? Because Ahaz knew that if God was giving him carte blanche like this, whatever he asked, God was going to do. And then every chance, every excuse for disobedience was gone. That was the problem. I'm not going to ask for a sign because I know he's going to do it and then I have to do what he tells me to do and I don't want to do that. What was it that Ahaz really wanted to do? <laughs> this was his plan. He said, ah, these tiny little two kings, I know how to fix that problem. I'm just going to the king of Assyria for help. Look at that big guy out there. He's so huge. Maybe these two small little kings are smoldering brands of firewood. But God didn't tell me that Assyria was a brand of firewood. So what if they come after me? I think I better make peace with them first. And we'll find out later that that was exactly his plan. And therefore he wasn't going to put God to the test. Because he did not want to be quiet and test God. He was much more confident of his own abilities at working out this political alliance and his scheming abilities than to sit still and do nothing in the face of this disaster. Well, so this is what God said. Hear, hear then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary me, weary men that you weary my God? Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. He shall eat curds and honey. By the way, we all know what that verse means completely outside the context, right? So all verses we hear about at Christmas, its primary meaning had to do with what was going on here. And we'll come to that, the other meaning too in a while. He shall eat curds and honey when he knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good. For before the boy knows how to refuse the evil and choose the good, the land whose two kings you dread will be deserted. The Lord will bring upon you and upon your people and upon your father's house such days as have not come since the days that Ephraim departed from Judah, the king of Assyria. 
Just notice what's happened. Notice first of all the play on these words. Before Ahaz refused the sign, God spoke to Ahaz and said, Ask a sign of the Lord your God. After he refused it, look at Isaiah's words. Here then, O house of David, is it too little for you to weary men that you weary my God also. No longer your God. The first appeal was to your God. Ahaz definitively rejected him. And God said, it's my God now, not yours anymore. The point of no return had been crossed. And then God says, you didn't ask me for a sign. I'm going to give you a sign anyway. The big difference is though, if you had asked me for a sign, it would have been a sign of my pleasure and a guarantee of your freedom. This time it is a sign of my displeasure and a guarantee of your destruction. And the irony, the unbelievable irony in this was, God's word was still coming true. Remember he said these are two smoldering brands of firewood? That hasn't changed. Assyria is going to take care of that as they were going to in my plan from the very beginning. But the only problem is now, Assyria will not stop with them. He's going to swallow you up as well. And one man put it semi-humorously to get the point. And you do get the point. He said, it's like a little mouse being attacked by two rats and says, I'll ask the cat for help. So the cat came and eats up the two rats and the mouse becomes dessert after that. The savior had become the executioner. So instead of amazing deliverance, what they have to look forward to is chaos. And just in case... We don't think that this is the whole point of the text. I can't do this too often uh, through the text because there's, it, it's, there's so much poetry and I don't know Hebrew poetry. But every now and then, looking at how the poetry is structured will help you to see what the real point was. And these 17 verses, if you look, this, look at the structure of the text, here's how it is structured. It's so beautifully structured. This, this is what gives us an idea that this Isaiah was just very carefully put together. Uh, uh, as poetry, in order to drive home for us what sometimes we miss in the prose. Uh, verses 1 and 2 is a picture of the house of David threatened by the two kings. Verse 17, the house of David destroyed, this time by Assyria. Verses 3 to 6, Isaiah's son and the plans of the northern powers. Verses 16, the virgin's son and the destruction of the northern powers. Verse 7 to 9, the Lord's word of assurance. Verses 13 to 15, the Lord's sign of judgment. Perfect symmetry. So what's left in the middle? The response of unbelief. Where do you think God wants us to focus on today? Ahaz's decision to cross the line of no return was the crux of this whole section. Now I'm not saying that every crisis that we face, whether the moderate low level crisis of too much to do or of a worship leader calling John and saying, hey, I need you to come back to worship. Whether it's the crisis of a man being called to quit his well-paying job and go back to school and trust God for income. Or whether it's any one of these other crises that I've outlined for us. I'm not saying that every one of them has a point of no return attached to it. But sometimes they can. Such things do exist. Let me point out a few of them. Japan after the Second World War was through a wide open invitation to the United States to send as many missionaries as they could. For whatever reason, I don't know who made the decision, they didn't. And that country today remains one of the hardest countries to reach for the gospel. A point of no return was crossed. The history of Mongolia would suggest that after Genghis Khan died and Kublai Khan became the great Khan, 
because of his contact with two of Marco Polo's uh, adventurers, he was greatly interested in Christianity. And he said, take a message back to, to Rome and send us 100 of your missionaries. Only two went. And Genghis Khan lost all interest. What might have been the history of China and Mongolia today? We don't know. Same thing is true at an individual level. There is a kind of rejection of Christ after having experiences of him that is a point of no return. Hebrews chapter 6. For it is impossible to restore. Again, notice not improbable, unlikely, difficult. It is impossible to restore again to repentance those who have once been enlightened, who have shared the heavenly gift and have shared in the Holy Spirit. So they've had some kind of genuine experiences and have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the power of the age to come. If they then fall away, since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding up to contempt. This isn't just people just... We, sometimes in our weaknesses, we sin. That's not what he's talking about here. One woman was quite perturbed last night, so I had to talk to her about that. No, no, this is talking about what the Bible calls the sin of apostasy. A clear, definitive statement that basically says, boy, if I was present in the first century, I would have agreed with all the people that were around the foot of the cross. I would have agreed that this man was an imposter. He was not a messiah. He deserved to be crucified. That kind of a definitive turning your back upon Jesus permanently, joining the ranks of those who agreed that he was an imposter. That's the kind of thing he's talking about. All I want to say for today is, there is such a thing as crossing a line of, uh, a point of no return at the individual level as well. And then there's a third one that I want to just mention briefly. Because it happens a lot. And even in recent times, I've had so many conversations around this subject. And that is single young men and women, more women than men, but not exclusively so. Whose hearts shake for a different reason. They look at the future and they say, if I have to live the way God wants me to live, I might never get married. And so they form alliances with the equivalents of the kings of his city. People who are not walking with God, who may not even have any interest in God and say, well, somehow this is going to work out. And it is preferable for me to do this than... To watch my soul, be calm, do nothing and trust God. And then the almost uniform testimony. In fact, I would have looked long and hard to find an exception. Is disappointment, if not destruction. No, that doesn't mean that people who have done that are beyond the grace of God. That's not what I'm talking about. But are there some lines that have been crossed that cannot be reversed? Talk to them and you'll find out yes. So much so, there was just also such a wonderful delight for me not too long ago to have a conversation with another woman who faced with exactly that same situation and said, I am not going to make an alliance with the king of Assyria. I am willing to trust God instead. So in all of these things, this is the question for us. When your hearts are shaking like the trees, who will you believe? The sovereign Lord are smoldering stubs of firewood. Because the stakes are very high. If you do not stand firm in faith, you will not stand at all. So be careful. Watch yourself. Be calm. Down tools and listen before you act. And then those shaking hearts might become courageous hearts that will enable us to obey wisely. Last night I was sitting uh, 
to our, to the last two songs, we did the same song at the end. The, the word that formed in my mind for a blessing is, is stability. You know? <laughs> and then I thought of, uh, you know how they put rebars into concrete. Because uh, concrete is very good in compression, it's very weak in tension, and so they put reinforced steel bars in the middle. And my mind went from there to Ephesians chapter 3, and that's my blessing for you. you know? May you be strengthened with might by the Spirit in the inner man. May Christ dwell in your hearts by faith, that rooted and grounded in love you may together with all the saints experience the length, the breadth, the height, and the depth of the love of Jesus Christ. And to know that love which is beyond all knowledge. Unto him who is able to do immeasurably more than we can ask or imagine. Uh, to Jesus Christ be glory forevermore in the church. Go in Jesus' name.